You are listening to a repeat of the Ask a Lawyer show. Therefore, please do not call or text in as any announcements made uh, may not be applicable. Hello, Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Ask Your Lawyer show. I am your host, Atik Malik, Director of Liberty Law Solicitors. And today we have another toolkit show where I basically talk you through an area of law in detail, setting out <coughs> the advice on best practice for that area of law, the pitfalls to watch out for. And of course, it's a live show. So if you have any questions about anything that I've mentioned or even the general topic that we are discussing today, then you can always call in, phone in, text in, message in with any questions or comments that you may have. As it's a live show, it's your opportunity to make it your show. So I'd really highly encourage you to uh, call in and participate uh, where possible. Um, the phone number to call is 01582 481822. That's 01582 481822. You can also text in on 0779 481822. That's 0779 481822. You can also WhatsApp on the same number. And also, you can uh, make contact with us on social media. You can tag us and make comments on Twitter with the tag AspireFM Luton. You can also so um, watch us live on Facebook Live um, on the Inspire FM uh, Facebook page, and the tag for that also is Inspire FM Luton. So come on, people, call in, text with any questions that you may have, and of course, it would be helpful if you knew what the topic was today. Today's topic is criminal law. In particular, we are going to be talking about um, arrest powers and what are your rights and how does the criminal system generally work from the point of first contact for the ordinary person on the street. More importantly, for the ordinary person who may never have had contact uh, with the police before and they may have received a call or a letter out of the blue um, and it might shake them uh, and cause confusion. It's good to know what to do when you're contacted by the police, why they would contact you, what are your options and what is the best practice to deal with it. Now, believe it or not, even though this is a toolkit show, we do have one little guest on the show today. And would you like to introduce yourself? Okay, my name's Inihiba and I am his daughter. Okay. And um so anyway, what so is come to everybody. Um, gum, everybody, hope you're well. And um, so what is criminal criminal law about? Okay, excellent. So she's asked what is generally uh, what is criminal law and how does it work? So criminal law is the area of law that deals with criminality. So in every country in the world, including this country, there are a number of laws which citizens are required to obey. And if you break those laws and do not follow them, then you have committed a criminal offence. Now, not all laws are criminal. There are some laws which fall squarely into the civil arena. Uh, a good example of that would be the discrimination laws under the Equality Act, for example. Um, if a shopkeeper or a restaurant was to discriminate against somebody because of the race, religion, the sex, sexual orientation, age, disability, etc., um, then in that situation, even though it's illegal, it's unlawful, uh, it would not be a criminal act, it would be a civil act. Um, so what distinguishes a criminal from a civil act? Now that is a good question because on the face of it, um, it's hard to tell sometimes. Um, but generally speaking, 
if the case that you um, or law even the law if that if the law you have broken is enforceable by the police if it's enforceable by the local authority by way of taking you to the magistrate's court or the crown court that's a very good indicator for a, a very a, a lay person a, you know a person who does not have any legal knowledge or training as to whether or not the case is a criminal case or a civil case because generally speaking majority of the criminal sort majority of the cases in the magistrates courts are criminal cases and all the cases uh, that are in the crown courts tend to be criminal cases and the difference between the magistrates court and the crown court is that the magistrate's court is the first stop. When a criminal case starts its life, it always has to go to the magistrate's court. If it's a serious case, then magistrate's court does not have the jurisdiction to deal with it. And in that situation, it gets sent up to the Crown Court, which is a bigger court, a more professional court, with professional judges and jury. When you watch criminal cases on TV, generally what you're seeing there in the UK TV programs are criminal courts, whereas uh, um, magistrates courts tend to have uh, one or maybe three judges sitting there to make a decision. does that include um, a criminal record? Does it like does any of that include a criminal record? Yes, and of course that's also a very important part that if you commit a criminal offence, you get a criminal record. Now that's a very important point, a very important distinguishing point, um, because of, of course with civil cases you do not get a criminal record. Now the reason why that's a very critical point to explain what a, uh, what is a criminal offence is this. Some people believe that you only commit a criminal offence if the offence for which you are convicted for um, sends you to prison or there's a risk of prison. That is not correct. Any criminal offence that creates a criminal record is a criminal... So any offence or breaking of law which creates a criminal record is a criminal offence. So a good example of that which anybody can do. You don't have to be a criminal to do a criminal offence. A good example of that would be somebody who's driving their car drives too fast, so for example they're supposed to be driving at 30 miles per hour the minute they go over that speed limit and are, uh, they have committed an offence, so if they are caught doing that um, they uh, will have to pay a fine and they get penalty points on their licence they will not go to prison for that, but yet that is a criminal record, they have a record now having committed a criminal offence that record can affect them in a number of ways, for example if they wish to renew the insurance policy in the future uh, the insurance company will look at how many points they have for what matters and that could affect their premium um, if you get too many points you can lose your driving license by way of disqualification and of course if you're a new driver then even if you get six points you could be at risk of the DVLA uh, taking your license away so that in itself is another key uh, ingredient for d- uh, discovering what is a criminal offense and what isn't now I have a question for Zaina Hibar. What my question to you is who has the power to arrest people? Um police? Yes, absolutely correct. The police have the power to arrest people. However, they aren't the only ones. Um there is also another power called the 
power of citizens arrest and that is for the ordinary person to also arrest people believe it or not yes such a power does exist but it has a much limited scope in comparison to the powers that police have the difference between the two is that the police do not have to uh, uh, see an offence to arrest someone for it the police can arrest somebody if they suspect they have committed an offence or if they suspect they are about to commit an offence as well as if they see someone committing offence in front of them. Now, historically there used to be such a thing as arrestable and non-arrestable offences. So what that meant is that in criminal law, if you committed certain offences, the police had the power to arrest you for them and if you committed other offences, the police did not have the power to arrest you, they could only summons you to court for it. Now that changed quite a few years ago and under the new law, well it's not new anymore, but under the change in the law, police can now arrest people for all criminal offences. So it's no longer a case of what is an arrestable offence and what is not an arrestable offence. But the remnants of that old law still exist and I'll describe to you how under the old law you could not arrest someone for common assault uh, battery so what that would mean is if you push somebody or slap somebody or alleged to have and there, there was no injury and that fell into the lowest level of assault which was an assault uh, common assault or battery um, on that case the police had no power to arrest you so what used to happen is often people used to get into arguments one person would hit another and they would call the police police would attend and realize i need to arrest this person but i can't because i don't have the power to arrest because the the power to arrest under the offenses against the person act in in those days only existed for ABH cases, ABH means actual bodily harm, or the different types of GBH cases, grievous bodily harm and above. So grievous bodily harm is obviously a very serious injury if someone's been stabbed or a serious wounding. ABH, again, serious bruising can also amount to um, actual bodily harm. So what did the police do? What they did in those days was arrest everybody for ABH, actual bodily harm. So even if somebody was just pushed by someone or slapped by someone and there was no injury caused, simply to trigger the arrest power and get around that loophole, well, get around that anomaly which was their loophole, was to arrest everybody for actual bodily harm. Now, when the law changed, we have found and we still find and i have to admit uh, nowadays it is uh, it has reduced quite a lot but it still happens that almost every time two people have a fight and somebody's arrested the police will still arrest them for abh even though it's obvious that there's no abh abh meaning actual bodily harm it's obvious that the person has only committed a common assault and then when you ask the police why have you arrested this person for actual bodily harm when you it's very clear there's no injury here it's very clear it's a common assault most police officers don't even have an answer for it their answer for it tends to be oh well that's how we've, we have been directed to deal with this by their superiors and unfortunately a lot of police officers believe that that is an answer it's not really because whether the superiors have told them or not it doesn't mean that it's right necessarily in law because quite easily one of the superiors could tend to do something which is not within the law um, 
and doesn't make it correct automatically. I'd, I'd like to say, but uh, you know the police, and um, you know when someone's trying to jump off a bridge, they don't have any um, reason to arrest them, so probably they have to um, take them to a mental hospital and like kind of like... You know. No, no, that's not how it works. So how it works, the police have powers of arrest which are quite broad but quite limited. Historically, the police powers of arrest were quite vague. Now what's happened is, and which is a good thing, new legislation came out. Now the police powers, generally speaking, the arrest powers, detention powers, search powers, are all dictated generally by legislation known as the Police and Criminal Evidence Act. In the legal world, both police and lawyers call it PACE, because that's what this first letter of each of those words spells. The Police and Criminal Evidence Act, the acronym for that is PACE. So under the PACE legislation, there is a piece of legislation called Code G. Code G of PACE has a list of circumstances where a person can be placed under arrest. One of those reasons is if they suspect that the person has or will commit an offence. But you will note, I have said that's one of the reasons. There are a number of other reasons that a person can also um, be arrested, placed under arrest for. Um, and that could also include for their own safety. So the police do have a power to do that. In a situation as described as a Nahiba, where somebody might be trying to harm themselves uh, seriously, um, or if they're trying to harm somebody else, the way it works is this, when a person is arrested, um, they, are, they have to be arrested as long as there's a reason under code G of PACE which gives them the authority to arrest them. Let's assume they have that authority, it is correctly applied and the person is arrested. The person is then taken to the police station. Now, often when people are arrested and their family members call me and they will say to me my son or my daughter is at the police station please can you help them um, the first question I ask is how long ago was it because even though the person may have been arrested and taken away in the police car say 10, 15, 20 minutes ago the process for booking people in is quite lengthy uh, within the police station. You normally have one, two or three custody sergeants sitting at their desks and they will be processing every single person that comes in. But when a person comes in, they have to be searched, their property has to be put safely away, they have to be asked a series of questions confirming their identity. They then have to be asked a series of questions confirming their welfare. Now that process can take quite a while sometimes. And if in one police station, for example in Luton police station, it's dealing with a large area. And in different parts of Luton, 10, 15 and 20 people have been arrested for different things. And they all arrive at the police station around about the same time. That person may not actually booked into the custody suite for at least an hour, two or three sometimes. And so sometimes what happens with family members, you know, with whose family member has been arrested, they may call in and say, look, my husband or my brother or my sister has been arrested, please call the police station. And or they may call in or we may call in as, law as lawyers and actually be told the person is not there. The reason we're told the person is not there, or you, the family members, are told the person is not there, is because the police do not know if the person is there until they are booked into the custody computer system.
So if they are waiting in the queue, uh, in the in the yard or in the cage leading up to the custody suite, waiting to be let in or waiting to be booked in, when on the computer system they would not be shown as booked in, and the answer would always be they are not there. So for that reason, if anybody is arrested, um, you should expect at least an hour or so to pass before you will get verification if indeed that person is at the police station that you expect them to be at okay so that is now the reason i explain it in that much detail is this what then hibba said which a lot of people might believe is that if the police arrest somebody especially somebody who might have mental health issues they will put them straight into uh, um, a mental health hospital or something like that the police can't do that because the police officers aren't trained to do that the way the police work when someone of mental health is arrested is first of all they're booked into custody and they're assessed from questions by the custody sergeant. If during that questioning um, the sergeant determines from the answers given by the person who's arrested or from what the police have told them or from the record that comes up on the police computer because if the person has been arrested before and the details are put into the computer then their previous information comes up if it's evident from that information that the person has got mental health issues then what they will first do is have that person assessed further and that is done by a medical professional so the medical professional uh, would have to be someone who's suitably qualified for that in the first instance they would contact their normal doctor they would call describe the situation and more often than not if there's serious mental health issues they would signpost the police to the local um, community mental health trust who would then send somebody out to check the person's welfare check how they are check what they need and then if it transpires that this person needs to be kept in a mental health institute they can make that decision from there but then that becomes more of a local authority decision as opposed to a police decision but the signposting starts from the police but if somebody has committed a criminal offence and they suffer from mental health it doesn't automatically mean that that person won't be interviewed for that offence under the PACE legislation and criminal law if a person seems to suffer from mental health the police are still duty bound to investigate fully now the investigation process in the in criminal cases entails not just arresting people and taking statements from witnesses and maybe looking at CCTV or doing forensics or doing telephone data checks and analysis it also would include interviewing a person under caution and I will go into that in more detail shortly but just for the sake of it um, you if someone's interviewed under caution and they have the option of answering questions or saying no comment to all the questions um, that process is important for the police because that's part of the investigation process so even if they think somebody hasn't committed an offence but the allegation has been made they would still ideally want to interview the person under caution just to tick that box and make sure that part of the investigation process was completed and so on the same note if someone's got mental health issues they will still interview that person now you may think well if someone's got mental health issues how can this interview someone the way it works then is that a, a mental mentally ill person 
is regarded as a vulnerable person just like children are and in that situation both children and people suffering mental health issues have the right to be accompanied by what's known as an appropriate adult and an appropriate adult is somebody who is suitable to sit in the interview with, with them their purpose is simply to safeguard and look after that person make sure they're okay make sure they are not interrogated or subjected to any sort of oppression whilst an interview to help and facilitate contact between the police and the person uh, being interviewed I have a question come in of what sections 136 Mental Health Act. I think what the question is asking me is what is section 136 of the Mental Health Act? Unfortunately, with the different sections of the Mental Health Act, the only type of lawyer who would be able to start answering those sorts of questions, that's a question from Yusuf, so thank you very much Yusuf for call, for tech messaging in with that question. But the only type of person who can really answer those sorts of questions are somebody who is a specialist in mental health law so this is what you find in in law that there are many different areas of law and the best example that i can give to you is for example if you've got a back problem if you go to a brain surgeon a brain specialist for that the brain specialist will be in difficulty in helping you with your back problem because the specialism is brains Similarly with a GP or general practitioner, they might have a general overview of different areas of medical uh, practice but they won't be specialists for example for orthopedics or uh, heart problems. Similarly in law, we have different areas of law. Um, yeah, Police can detain under section 136 and convey to hospital. Yes, probably correct. Now similarly on under under um, in law, we have different areas of law. So for example, if you're uh, buying or selling a house, you would have conveyancing. If you had, for example, the uh, criminal law, which is what we deal with, then uh, that's criminal lawyers. Um, when people go to prison, um, that falls under prison law. Now that's a bit of an anomaly because you'd assume that the same lawyer who represented somebody before they go to prison um, is the same uh, person that can help them whilst they're in prison. That's not actually correct because whilst a criminal lawyer can help somebody up until the point they're convicted to go to prison, whilst they're in, the, in prison and in the prison system, they are in a different arena and for that a specialist would be um, the, special, the relevant specialist would be a prison lawyer so coming back to Yusuf's question he probably is correct uh, I don't know this section off by heart but with mental health issues and detention under the mental health act whether it's by the police whether it's by the uh, local authority um, uh, governed institutions or hospitals all of that comes under mental health law um, and yes, un firm, law firms that do mental health law is one of the few areas where you can still get legal aid because legal aid has been taken back under a lot of uh, different areas of law. So if you know anybody who needs assistance because they have been detained under for um, relevant mental health act uh, and taken to a hospital, even in that situation you would need a mental health lawyer and preferably somebody who's got legal aid because most people who have mental health issues, especially serious mental health issues, it's unlikely that they would have their own income and be able to pay for a lawyer. So you should always make sure <coughs> that the law firm dealing with it is able to do it um, under uh, legal aid. So as I was saying, the 
even though the person might have mental health issues, they would still have to be interviewed under caution. And they would have an appropriate adult with them, just like children do. Um, and after the interview process is finished, if it, if it can be done, because of course there are some people out there with such serious mental health issues that the interview process simply cannot take place. But let's assume it does and it, and it finishes. The police then have to decide how to dispose of the case. Has a criminal offence been committed? Does a person need to be charged and given a court date? Um, and is the person free to be released? Um, and is there any other situations that give rise for referral to some other mental health institute or signposting to the local authority. So all of that, that is known as disposal. And disposal will take place under after the um, interview process is finished. Now often you find people with mental health issues are still charged and still sent to court. And what happens then is if someone's got mental health issues and they are simply unable to stand trial because of that issue, the court will com conduct an exercise to determine whether there is fitness to plead, you know, the person is fit to stand trial, whether the person is fit to plead. And that also um, is a process in itself with the relevant evidence that has to be put forward and the decisions have to be made as to whether it is even in the public interest for a trial to take place or whether a trial can take place. You'll be shocked to hear that there are many cases where people might have mental health issues but they're deemed fit to plead, deemed fit to stand trial and trials do take place. Um, so that unfortunately brings us to the end of the first half of the show um, and so please stay tuned if you have any questions or comments with regards to what we're discussing feel free to email or message that through um, <clears throat> and then we will deal with it on the other side 01582 that's 01582 <clears throat> or Aspire FM Luton on Facebook or zero triple seven nine four eight one eight two two zero triple seven nine four eight one eight two 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 message of the studio. Thank you very much. See you on the other side. Salam alaikum. Salam alaikum. Welcome back to the Ask Your Lawyer Show. We're in part two now of the Atik Malik Criminal Law Toolkit. I am your host, Atik Malik. Director of Liberty Law Solicitors, and we are today discussing criminal law. In particular, we're discussing arrest powers and procedures. We are discussing your rights before and after. How do arrest powers work? Um, and what to do if you're contacted by the police, how to deal with it. Um, we do also have a little guest in the studio today. Do you want to introduce yourself? My name's Inahiba and I'm his daughter. Assalamu alaikum everybody. Excellent. Okay, so she's been assisting me in the first part of the show. She's asked a few key questions, which I'm sure many of you out there um, were also thinking about. Uh, and just to recap, uh, we spoke about um, what is what is criminal law, how does it work, we spoke about how um, people are booked into custody, how that process works, how people are vetted, sort of questions they're asked and the time frames for that and also we tied into that about um, mental health issues, if people have, someone has a mental health issue how were they dealt with, etc. So, um, let's start again with Zena Hibba. Zena Hibba, do you have a question for us? Well, so, going back to crime law, like um, my dad said, um, if the police want to 
interview someone, do they have to arrest them? That's a very good question. I'll tell you why that's a good question, because believe it or not, there's, there, there are a lot of police officers out there. It's changed now a lot because of recent changes of the law. But up until recently, there are a lot of police officers out there who did not even know the answer to this themselves. Even though is part of their job, okay? But, and I will explain that to you. Again, historically, arrest powers used to be quite different. And it used to be the case um, that the police, by habit, would arrest everyone who they wish to question about an offence. So, if, as part of the investigation process, is the police want to find out what happened, they want to, uh, they would have to interview the person against whom the allegation has been made and say to that person, look, X person has said this about you, what have you got to say? Is it true that you did this or did that, etc. Now, that interview is done under what's known as a caution. Now, the caution is three paragraphs, I'm sure, which many of you must have seen in the movies. But just so that you know, I'll break it down for you. I'll read the caution out to you, and then I'll break the caution down for you into detail so you understand how the caution works and why it's read out. So the caution is read out by the police whenever someone's arrested or whenever someone's interviewed. So at the start, uh, before they arrest someone or as they arrest somebody and before they start the interview, they read the caution out. And that's why it's called an interview under caution. Because you're being interviewed further to being cautioned. The caution then is a warning to the person being arrested or interviewed and it's to the effect. Three paragraphs. First paragraph, you don't you do not have to answer any questions. Olden days in the movies or in American movies you hear similar wording to the effect of you have the right to remain silent. Okay? Same difference. So that's the first paragraph. Second paragraph. If you fail to mention something now which you later rely on in court it may harm your defence. Final paragraph, anything you say may be used in evidence. Now, you may think, well, what is the relevance of that? Why is the person being told that when they're arrested? Or why are they being told that before the interview? The reason they're being told that is, once the person's been warned about that, if they say anything, then that, whatever they say can be, then be used in a court of law at a later stage. If they're not cautioned, and it makes it more difficult for the police to use anything they've said uh, as evidence. So... First part of the caution is you do not have to say anything. Why is that? Surely, and this is a question we hear all the time in the community, surely if the police are asking you a question, you must have to answer it, shouldn't you? How can you not answer the police question? You know, very recently I was sitting in the office the other day and somebody rang one of my colleagues and said, look, the police, they're calling us, they want to speak to us, what do I say to them? And they were told, you don't have to say anything, it's, it's your choice. If you wish to speak to the police, then you speak to them. If you do not wish to speak to them, you do not. And the people on the other end of the line found that really hard to understand because the, uh, the assumption is the police have so much authority that when they speak to you, you have to answer. No, you do not. There are two situations that the police will speak to you in. Well, three. One is where you are making a complaint to the police. Okay? Obviously, if you're the one calling the police to make a complaint about something that's happened, then in that situation, you're the one calling the police. The police can't force you to speak to them. You've made the choice to speak to them yourself. Second situation is where you are a witness or a potential witness to an offence, the police are calling you. Now, there is nothing in English law that says that you are under a duty to 
be a witness or give a witness statement or to speak to the police. If you, for whatever reason, feel that you do not wish to do so, you cannot be forced to do so. Now let's go to the far end of the spectrum. What is the worst case scenario that you would be in where the police can ask you questions over and over and expect an answer? It would have to be the situation where you're under arrest for an offence. But of course, we've all seen it on TV, we've seen it in the media. When someone's arrested, they have the power to say no comment or not answer any questions or to stay silent. There's nothing in law that stops them from doing that as such. So, that is why you have the power. But why do you have the power though? Why can you choose not to answer questions when you're under arrest or being interviewed under caution? The reason is this. In English law, if somebody makes an accusation that someone has done something wrong, they have to prove it. The burden of proof is on the accuser. Now, whilst I said that is in English law, it hasn't started in English law. And this is another thing a lot of people in our community don't understand. These principles of the accuser having to show evidence for make an accusation against somebody it comes from way before the Magna Carta which is what a lot of English law is based upon in the UK but in actual fact if you look in the history books in the Islamic Empire you know from the time of the of uh, the dawn of our religion of Islam that principle has always been there there are many examples even within our own religion that if someone makes an accusation against someone, evidence has to be brought. There has to be X number of witnesses for a certain events, for any accusation. You cannot simply make an accusation and expect to convict someone without evidence. So that is a principle which stems way back in the history books. It's not something just under British law. And so sometimes, you know, I hear people say to me, well, how can somebody go to comment? You know, it's haram or, you know, it's not against our religion. I'm, I'm sorry, it's, it's not. If somebody is making an accusation against you, they have to be able to prove it, okay? And as far as I'm concerned, if they can, if it cannot be proven, then that is how the rule of law has to work. Because believe it or not, just as there are many people out there who might commit offences and they may get away because there's not enough evidence, there are also many people out there who make false accusations against people for a number of different reasons. Hatred, jealousy, spitefulness, mistake. Believe it or not, there are many occasions where there are genuine mistakes made over identity. I've seen prime examples in my practice where somebody has accused somebody of having done something because they have made, there's been a case of mistaken identity. And there's, no matter how many times you ask that person the question in how many different ways, they will still think no and, be, and answer the question saying no, it was this person because they are convinced it was that person. When in reality it was not. And again, that's where evidence comes in. Because if that person can initial evidence that, for example, I did not rob that person because on that day I wasn't even in the country, for example, and that's powerful evidence that would have to come forward. Now, because the burden of proof resting on the accuser, the way it works in police interviews under caution is that if a person asks a question and they answer no comment, 
And if there's no evidence to show the person's done anything, then what would happen is the case would automatically finish, it would disappear. Reason being, because there is no evidence to show that the accused has done what has been alleged. And as I said, that isn't something new and novel in English law from the Magna Carta or thereafter. It is something which is enshrined historically and from our community perspective, most definitely something that's enshrined in our own religion. Going, going back, back uh, 1400 years. Okay? So that is uh, very, so very important to look at. Now, the second paragraph of the caution is anything you say may be used evidence. Oh, is it? Let me just make that right. No, I got it wrong. That was the third paragraph. The second paragraph is, if you fail to mention something now which you later rely on in court, it may harm your defence. So let me say that again. If you fail to mention something now which you later rely on in court, it may harm your defence. So now you might be thinking, hang on, this is the opposite. I've just been told I do not need to answer any questions. I've just been told that the burden of proof is on the accuser. But then the second paragraph says that if I don't say anything, it could harm my defence. What does that mean? Well, it's like this. In English law, whilst there is a presumption of innocence, so innocent until proven guilty, whilst there is a presumption that the other side have to prove your wrongdoing first, you're also warned that if there's something you could say today, which could exonerate you, which means, which could prove that you're innocent, and you fail to say it, and you fail to put a story forward today, or you put a story forward, and then at some point in the future you end up at court, and then at court you come out with a different story, either a new story in terms of you having no story when you were interviewed, or a new story in terms of a completely different story to what you said at the police station, then that will be considered. Because what the what the court could do is ask the decision maker, could be the jury or a judge, to decide whether or not an adverse inference should be drawn. An adverse inference would be an inference, a decision, an assumption that this person has only come out of his story now at court because they are lying. And that can be very serious because if the court believes that you are lying and damage, that could damage your credibility. And if your credibility is damaged when you're at court and nobody believes you, then clearly in such a situation it's very highly likely that you would be convicted. So that's why you are warned that, okay, you might choose to go no comment or stay silent, that is your choice. But equally, if you fail to mention something now and you do end up at court, the court could say to you, well, why did you not have say that at the police station in the first place? The last bit of the caution is anything you say will be used as evidence. What does that mean? Now that's very important as well. What it means is everything you say is being recorded. Now well, often when I say to people it's being recorded, they assume it means actual recording. It does and it doesn't. A police officer could also record what you're saying by writing it down in a notebook. That's also recording. They can record what you're saying with a camera audio and visual. They can record what you're saying with a microphone, so it's just audio. They can record it any way that they choose, but the fact is it is being recorded. So 
you are being told that everything you're saying from this moment on is being recorded. So if at court later on you come out with a story or a different story and you say, actually, no, I did not say that at the police station interview or I didn't go no comment, the police can prove that you did because they would have a recording. And that recording will be, could be played in court, a transcript of that could be read out in court. So in those situations, um, you could be caught out and be shown as a liar, damage your credibility. So again, you're being warned. So that's what a caution is. And the interview under caution is, as I said at the start, a situation where you're cautioned before you're interviewed. So the question that we were asked by Zainal Hibar was, do you have to be arrested to be interviewed under caution? And as I said, there's a lot of police officers that only recently started to learn that you do not and started to adopt it. And and the way, the reason why is this. In the first part of the show, we discussed what is a power of arrest. And we discussed that it arises from Koji of Pace. And we discussed how Koji of Pace sets out a list of necessity. So the way it works is to arrest somebody, it has to be necessary. And one of the um, lists or points in the list of necessary actions, <coughs> or triggers even, is the need to interview someone under caution. But that's only if it's necessary. So, for example, if someone contacts the police, or the police contacts someone, and the person says, look, I'm willing to come in and to be interviewed under caution, when the question arises, if that person is agreeable to being interviewed under caution, why do they need to be arrested? The answer to that is they do not. They do not need to be arrested just to be interviewed under caution. If there is no risk of them running away, if there is no risk of them committing further offences after the arrest, so after the interview under caution, there is no uh, risk of them interfering with prosecution witnesses, committing further offences, running away, causing harm to themselves, causing harm to others, etc. Then none of the exhaustive uh, points in Code G of Pace are triggered. If they're happy to confirm the identification, etc., again, it's not triggered. So, in that situation, if there are no triggers to justify an arrest, and a police officer arrests somebody, and you ask the question, officer, why am I being arrested? Or why is my brother being arrested? Or my sister, or my uncle, or my dad? And their answer is, because I wish to interview them under caution. And that's the only answer. And that's the only reason. There is no other surrounding reasons why they would need to do that. Then that arrest amounts to an unlawful arrest. That arrest amounts to an unlawful breach of that person's liberty. That arrest amounts to an unlawful detention. That arrest is illegal, it is unlawful, it can be actioned. It will be actioned by way of a formal complaint to the police force. It can be actioned by way of a formal complaint to the IOPC, the people who govern the police force. It can be actioned by way of going to court and launching civil proceedings for breach of your human rights, breach of your human right of freedom to liberty, breach of um, the legislation that makes it an, uh, an unlawful detention unlawful, that makes it an unlawful arrest unlawful. And for all of that, a person was to win that such a case at a civil arena, they would or could receive compensation. And so 
it's not whilst there is a battle of principle to be fought here because why should somebody be arrested for no reason if they can be dealt with some other way there is also the uh, the financial aspect of it because your liberty has value and whilst you may argue that what price can you put on liberty i agree with that but something at least teaches those who arrest people the lesson that they cannot just go around arresting anybody and anyone that they wish there has to be a justified reason for it um, so that's where we are at with the arrest powers uh, and arresting someone and the necessity for it um, and so what do you do then if the police contact you if the police contact you and say they wish to speak to you you need to first of all make it very clear under what basis it is that they wish to speak to you and how they are treating you if they say we wish to treat you as a witness and interview you so have a quick chat with you then you have a choice there we don't have to speak to them if you wish to cooperate and assist there's nothing wrong with that if you wish not to there's nothing wrong with that if they say we wish to have a chat with you about an offence you need to ask them a key question if you simply say to them, am I being arrested they might say no to you but then when you turn up the interview under caution you see it's a clever play with words because you're not being arrested if you're interviewed under caution you're just being interviewed but that interview will could make the difference between you going to court or not and being convicted or not so the key question isn't am I going to be arrested the first key question is am I going to be interviewed under caution that's the first key question is that what you want to do if the answer to that is yes then the next two questions that you need to ask is number is firstly will I be arrested if I'm there and that's a fair question to ask they may or may not wish to answer that and the other question is can I have my own lawyer there and of course you can the answer to that is you do not have to go with the lawyer the police provide they often try and give you a duty solicitor which again there's nothing wrong with but if you have your own lawyer that you wish to use there is nothing wrong with that you can insist on that which lawyer you have is your choice your freedom of choice nobody can force that on you not even an insurance company we often have cases which are funded by insurance policies insurance policies if you have um, um, legal uh, uh, expenses cover on an insurance policy such as your household insurance policy you can um, have that pay for your funding of your criminal case so for example if you're go you've got a driving matter which you will not get legal aid for the insurance policy could pay for that or if you don't qualify for legal aid because you earn too much for example you have too many assets an insurance policy can pay for your criminal uh, funding and also with the insurance policy um, you can fund civil claims like employment cases or uh, personal injury cases or debt cases but even in insurance policies what you often find is you might call up the insurance company and say okay can i have legal cover uh for this issue and they'll send you to one of the panel lawyers that they can do that but they can't force that on you and they might try their best but they cannot under the insurances act there is a key provision which clearly says that even under insurance policy the person who's insured has a freedom of choice of their lawyer so the freedom of choice of your lawyer exists you nobody can force you to say no you can't have that lawyer you have to have this lawyer unless there is only one exception 
if your her case is funded by legal aid and you've signed up to legal aid and your case is now at court and you suddenly decide you wish to change lawyers you can only do that if you have a good reason and a judge approves that so you have to put application into the judge in your case the judge will have to listen to the application and then decide whether or not um, they uh, would allow that application to be made so that in that situation there's no guarantee that you'll be allowed to change lawyers um, and, and that, the reason for that is what the judge would say is you already had the opportunity to choose your lawyers at the start of the case and they will not switch people halfway through or particularly close to a trial because the last thing a judge wants to do is delay the hearing of a case and that of course is due to public policy reasons because there are so many cases in the system and there is a big weight on the criminal justice system to deal with as many cases as quickly as possible and as efficiently as possible and that's what a judge that's one of the primary roles that a judge has in court proceedings so we go back again you can choose uh, any lawyer you ask that question and if you are going to be doing a caution then you arrange for your lawyer to be there with you or you give your details to the lawyers and the lawyers then arrange that accordingly so that is how you do it Okay, you do not just get pressured and just go right into, into police just because they wish to speak to you. You have the power to choose if they should speak to you or not and how it should be done, uh, etc. Okay, and that situation remains whilst you're in custody. When you're arrested and you're in custody, you have various rights. And one of those rights is, ac is access to legal advice. And your right to access to legal advice exists throughout your time in police station. So even if um, you've said to the police, I do not wish to have a lawyer, and then the interview starts, and then halfway through the interview you think, actually, hang on, you know what, I do need a lawyer, I think I will ask for a lawyer, um, do not be scared of that. You are free to stop the interview, say, look, I'm sorry, I don't feel well, or I want to stop the interview, or I want to speak to a lawyer. You can stop the interview any time, and they have to respect that decision. And then you can always say to them, well, can you go call this lawyer for me, please? Or can you call the duty solicitor, please, because I wish to be legally represented. And then a lawyer will come. Now, one of the things that people get confused with is they think the lawyer will create a defence for them. That's not how it works in the real world. The way it works is the lawyer will advise you on your options based on your case and based on your instructions. So if you tell the lawyer, look, yeah, I did do it, but can you give me a way out? It doesn't work like that because the lawyer cannot give you a way out. The lawyer cannot advise you to make up a lie. The lawyer cannot advise you to plead not guilty if you've told him or her that you are guilty. That is not how it works. The lawyer's job is to advise you on the law based on the circumstances that you're in, based on the circumstances of the offence in which it was allegedly committed, on the evidence before them, and more, most importantly, on what you, the person who is in custody says. It is quite possible, however, for someone to have, an, to have committed an offence, but to say, I'm not going to give any evidence, and I'm not going to say that I'm innocent. What I will say is if you think I've committed the offence, then you prove it. And that is not misleading anybody. And that a lawyer can do. So, for example, a situation you might decide to go no comment in the interview. And if you end up at court to give no evidence. And not to say the words, I am innocent. 
but still run the case because the police or the prosecution will still have to prove that you have committed the offence and if they cannot, even though you have not said the words I am not guilty, even though you have not given a defence, a person could still win the case because you go back to the original position that the accuser has to bring evidence to prove that the person who's done the wrongdoing has actually done it. Now, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the first part of our sorry, of, the, of the whole of the show, not the first part, the whole of the show. Uh, Zena Hiba, have you enjoyed yourself today? Yeah. Uh, so, Assalamualaikum to everybody. Okay, and thank you everybody for tuning in. If you have any questions or suggestions for any future shows, feel free to contact the studio myself directly and enjoy your week. Asalaamu Alaikum.